Good evening, everyone. How's everyone doing? How are you guys doing? Lucy and Perun, welcome. Thank you for joining us. So this is the first of our CBA AMA series. Um, it's going to be a pretty casual, comfortable talk with people in the blockchain space, typically in the region. Um, once in a while, we'll get some global folks. Um, and I know everyone's kind of worn out. A lot of people are still in lockdown. We are somewhat. Um, everyone's kind of burnt out of, you know, long Zoom talks. There's been at least 100 already since March. There's been like five just today. So we, the idea for this is just to keep it casual. We're going to focus on Q&As. We're going to focus on impact, basically. Um, what people are doing in the space, how it, it can impact folks within the Caribbean and also just in the general, um, globally, really. Um, so we're just going to start off there. So I'm going to introduce the two speakers I have today, which are Lucia Gallardo and Ruin Baker. I'll just start with their bios. Uh, Lucia Gallardo is a Honduran serial entrepreneur that bridges technology with justice and inclusion movements. She's the founder of Emerge, a socio-technology solutions development lab offering impact as a service for companies and governments looking to address pressing industry and global problems. Emerge's award-winning use of blockchain, IoT, and AI is fused with legacy systems and SMS text messaging to ensure even communities without consistent connectivity can benefit from the future of money and trade. Welcome, Lucia. Thank you for having me here. Really excited um, to talk to Varun and to receive some questions on an issue I'm deeply passionate about. Definitely. So Varun here is uh, Varun Baker, co-founder of the Slash Roots Foundation and the CEO of Farm Credibly. Farm Credibly leverages blockchain technology to provide access to loans for unbanked farmers in Jamaica. So at Slash Roots, Varun tackled issues such as the theft of crops of livestock from farms in Jamaica, and he's now benefiting from those close interactions with these farmers uh, who shared these challenges and have provided a lot of insights that helped him to shape the work that Farm Credibly is doing today. So welcome, Varun. Thanks a lot. Great to be here and great to be engaged with the wider CBA community. Absolutely. So we'll just start going in with the um, Q&A. And what we'll do here for all the audience is, because uh, I know a lot of the audience isn't technical. So after the, we're going to have a few questions and then we'll kind of put it out to the audience to throw in a few questions. So if you think of anything, just kind of throw it in the chat and we'll do that closer to the end. Um, so our first topic that we're going to start off with is food security, something that's clearly very important. And I think a lot of countries are realizing the importance of this right now. Um, so if we start off with, uh, if we start with Lucia, just the question of what is food security to you? What do these concerns look like, um, globally and also within the Caribbean in terms of food security? Yeah, I think, you know, if. I, a lot of, a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the Caribbean are actually reflective of like what we're seeing on a grander scale. Um, I think in terms of pressing concerns that impact a country's ability to feed its population and, a, and an individual's ability to feed themselves. Um, I think there's, you know, a problem in the Caribbean where we're talking about a region that is largely like a net food importing economy, right? Like if you think about CARICOM as a region, about half of the countries in the region are currently importing more than 80% of the food they consume, which is an insane amount. Um, and of the entire region, only three countries produce half the food they, they consume. Everything else is imported. So you're talking about most of the countries being in between that 50 and 80% of import, right? Um, and that messes a lot with pricing. It messes a lot with um, availability. And then when you have something like a, a global pandemic, any disruption to international supply chains immediately has an impact in the population's ability to feed, it, feed itself. You also have other issues that are you know, more related to food production and how it's been declining across the region, especially as it pertains to fruits and vegetables. So we're seeing more of a need to import fruits and vegetables, which traditionally had been what the region was actually able to give to itself. Um, you're looking at, you know, what it means to import food. It means that, you know, a lot of the food that's coming in is being manufactured elsewhere and it's coming in more processed. And so they need to have longer shelf life. 
So it's impacting the degree and the quality and nutrition of food that the region eats. So if you actually exclude the United States, the Caribbean has the highest indices of obesity across the Americas. Um, and so that's giving you an indication that not only are we struggling to produce food, but we're also now consuming food that is unhealthy. Um, and then, you know, a couple other issues uh, that are important to remember are the fact that local lack of local production diminishes local economies, right? And so at the moment, if you think about how families are spending their food, if we're importing more of it and we're bringing in more processed food and food is getting more expensive, it means that at the moment, families are spending on average about 75% of their income on food. And that's also a ridiculous amount. So you have really high prices and it's impacting families' financial viability um, and financial stability. And then finally, obviously, you have the big, big issue of climate, climate change, right? So we're talking about, um, you know, the FAO estimating that the Caribbean will lose about 25% of its crop yield in the next decade. So our inability to now deal with this other threat, which is not man-made and, well, man-made in, in, you know, a very large scale sense, but not man-made in that we can't control the ways that natural disasters are hindering crop yield or are destroying crops or are impacting the, our ability to grow food. All of these issues are sort of really pressing for the region and we need diverse ways and really aggressive ways of, of tackling them. So um, I think thinking through some of the concerns I would pinpoint as those being like the primary large-scale contributors to, to food insecurity in the region. Yeah, uh, and the quality aspect is a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. And then just in general, the fact that the Caribbean, I think you said 80%, that can go up to sometimes even 95%. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so. it's, it's, really, it's like more than 80%, right? So half the countries are importing more than 80% of their food. That is wild. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. So Garun, uh, same question, but also just, you know, general food security concerns. And then also um, specifically with regards to COVID-19, whether it's, um, you know, the pandemic or the lockdowns, uh, how do these concerns look to you, either yeah. in Jamaica or just the wider Caribbean? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'll start with the wider Caribbean, but even beyond that, um, food security is uh, a global concern. So it's mainly rooted in a lot of um, trends that we're seeing. Lucia touched on a few really good ones. And, uh, you know, if we really think about it, you know, the world population by 2050 is supposed to be almost 10 billion people. So um, not only that, but the increase in urbanization means 70% of that population is going to be in urban centers. And uh, all our food, of course, is currently produced in the countryside, right, in rural areas. So trends like that, as well as just the fact that the average age of a farmer is over 50 or 60, um, we really do get concerned about what the world is going to look like in 2050. And the glaring question is, how are we going to feed so many people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's food security on the global sense. But um, on regionally in the Caribbean, um, and specifically, I speak from my vantage point in, in Jamaica, I think um, I have started looking at food security more as a question of national security, yeah. because there are clear economic um, repercussions to the way we're doing things. And as a small island state or a collection of small island states, we are often uh, kind of very vulnerable to outside shocks and uh, policies. So, you know, the same issue around import export is huge, but when we talk about climate change, which directly impacts our food supplies, you can ask any farmer, um, we also contribute quite minimally to the global kind of pollution that's causing all of this, yet we're affected disproportionately right we are well yeah so these are the types of concerns that come around and they're the reason that i describe food security more from a national security perspective and something i would uh put at the same level of importance as where we how we allocate our military in the sense that we need to think about um taking serious steps to address some of these concerns and protect our citizens a bit better than we have uh, historically in this sense. So I'm glad this is the topic today and I, I am happy to get into it. Um, you know, when we speak specifically about COVID now, we 
get into the intricacies of our food supply chains. And so the supply chain is just, you know, all the steps that uh, this food takes from its a seed in the ground in some cases, all the way up to being in the palm of someone's hand, right? It passes many different stages. And so with COVID, a lot of that has been um, kind of disrupted. And more importantly, I think for a region, um, we, we are actually just seeing the, uh, the importance of our um, own local production in food versus being so dependent on, the tour on tourism. So um, the whole COVID situation has meant that the you know, arrivals from tourists to the region has dropped dramatically. And so all of that uh, income has is just gone. And so, you know, luckily, I think this has turned a, a bright light on industries such as agriculture and food production and given people a lot more incentive to refocus there and actually recognize the value that these um, these industries have. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you're on point. And, you know, something that's interesting to me that I've been thinking a lot about is desalination of water, because a lot of people think of what like food security and water security as two separate issues. And yet so much of water security affects and impacts the way that we grow our food and in the Caribbean more so because you have these this issue of rising sea levels. And that leads to like the almost like encroachment of water. Um, and, and so you have like a flood of, of salinated water in, in what you're using to grow your, your crops. And obviously that has an impact on the, the food itself, right? So this problem of desalination and making sure that you're preserving your freshwater reserves in an, in an isolated region, technically, then like, I think that's a really important factor. And then in terms of, of COVID, I mean, I think the world was pretty shocked when it, sort of was confronted by something that had such a massive disruption into global supply chains, not just in food and just generally, you know, but I think in food, we really felt it the most with, you know, the notion of two things happening at the same time, one of which is, you know, we're having all these borders close and you're, you're preventing food from coming in. But then inside a, a country, you have hoarding and people buying, you know, a lot of different types of food. You're, they're purchasing a lot. They're running, you know, low on supplies and things like that. And so you have both of these phenomena happening at the very same time. And you realize just how much food security can impact peace and security, as Varun sort of indicates on the national defense front. And then, you know, you, you face this economic issue. And then you're saying, well, my supply chain, which is, you know, all of these steps that have to go through, I rely on a transportation company, I rely on import authority, but import authority is closed right now, my transportation company might go out of business. Now, how am I going to get my food into a different country? You know, what is happening on the regulation front? And what are these new protocols in order to make sure that a country accepts my food as safe and non contaminated? And so you have all of these new questions that, you know, if you are a farmer that is focused on you know honey or coffee and suddenly the entire international chain that surrounds you is disrupted then how do you as a farmer or you as a singular person within a larger ecosystem sort of confront all of these things that are happening at the same time while preserving your financial viability and then you know just naturally economic you know economic issues leading to increased rates of hunger we were already doing very poorly on the advancement of diminishing hunger around the world, we have about 890 people right now with food insecurity in terms of hunger and nutrition, food safety, and making sure that, you know, if you are acquiring food, is it contaminated? Are you properly washing it and preparing it? Um, and then access to labor. And if you're in a lockdown, how are people still producing food? And how are we making sure that people can consistently feed themselves? So I think like, it, it's been very interesting to sort of almost put like a magnifying glass onto like issues that were clearly there before, but now are, are sort of exacerbated by the fact that so many things are happening at the same time, given the pandemic. Yeah, it's a lot of issues that are kind of coming to the forefront at the same yeah. time. Um, the, the desalination aspect is pretty interesting, actually. It's <laughs> definitely something we desperately need more development on. Yeah, it's I, been on my mind so much lately. I've just been thinking <laughs> about like, get the salt out of water, get the salt out of water, um, you know, but we it's not easy and it's not cheap. Up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. And Rowan, I loved your, I'm really glad you brought up the point about uh, connecting food security and national security. Because if you think about it, it's been happening. It's, the effects are almost the equivalent of a blockade, really. So if you think about it in terms of that aspect, it's like, well, if we can't get anything in, 
then it, it, we have nothing really. So, and both of you kind of brought up supply chain. So I think we'll jump into that a bit. Um, so I guess fairly similar question, but, but given that, you know, you have food security and then you have supply chains for various things, supply chains being like the kind of end-to-end -end process for goods moving, you know, across the world, whether it's island to island, region to region, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, it, it's for various goods and not just food, but, you know, anything that we need. Um, so I guess what, uh, outside of what we've already talked about, what are some other issues that have to do with, you know, supply chains and what's been happening? Well, actually, sorry, issues with supply chains in general that have affected us even before this year. Yeah. I mean, Varun, do you want to go first or? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think my comment is even before, even before, um, but something that is more pronounced now is just um, kind of a lack of diversity in our supply chains very often. So um, a lot of our supply chains have been focused on efficiency. So producing, you know, whoever produces it, uh, things the cheapest gets, you know, a larger market share. And the, um, the I guess the focus on, on efficiency has, um, meant that there hasn't been as much of a focus on resilience, meaning that, you know, if I'm buying an egg every day, um, I should still be able to get it tomorrow, even if it's coming from somewhere else. And um, there's just a general lack of diversity in our, in our food supply chains in general. I think 50% of the food, um, the nutrition humans get are from like three different crops, right? Maize, rice, and wheat. And so there, uh, there needs to be more diversity on our plates in general. Um, but in a similar way, our supply chains also need to be um, equipped to handle diversity so that when there are shocks like this, things can reorganize in a way um, that is not as disruptive as what we've seen so far, right? So that's my initial take on it. Yeah, I think it's interesting from the diversity perspective, but also I think from the production perspective of saying like most of the food that is produced in certain regions is for export. And so what that means is a lot of homogenization of food because it all needs to look the same for markets that have certain preferences. So, you know, I think um, I'm both like really into food production, but I'm also very much into eating <laughs> and preparing it. <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, something that really strikes me is this, this fact that there are well over 100 different varieties of corn. And yet, if you ask an economy that constantly imports food, what corn looks like, they'll give you a variety that's either yellow or white, right? Because there's so much, there's so much homogenization of crop that I think a big component is, you know, we're losing a lot of the vitality and what we're able to grow. And we're losing a lot of that diversity, as Varun mentions, but also because we are now creating this improper balance between where food is actually produced and then where it's headed and how much of it is headed externally and what that does to local price pricing and local availability of food and how that affects local populations in their, their own food security attempts right i think in addition to that supply chains become interesting because there's this notion of lack of trust and authenticity and if you sort of look at consumer research all around people don't trust food supply chains like they don't they just don't trust them. Um, there's a lot of issues when it comes to, you know, looking for that locally sourced, locally or organic version, even though it's more expensive because of this notion that you don't trust where your food is coming from, this lack of transparency. And you sort of are trusting these like blind seals that say, oh, well, this is fair trade. Oh, well, this is organic or this is, you know, non-GMO, but there's no transparency into those processes for the consumer. So as a consumer, you're kind of forced to say, well, it's either something that has a non-GMO label or something that does have a GMO label or something that says it's organic or something that doesn't say it's organic. So I'm just going to choose the one that has the label on it because I guess that's better than the other option, right? But there's no transparency into any of these processes. And you sort of see how people are starting to very slowly wake up to that and demand a little bit more because we're seeing like a, an, and this applies to all consumers, uh, not just food consumers, but it just generally, we're seeing more demand for ethical supply chains conscious consumerism, understanding more about what's going into whatever it is that we're purchasing. And this sort of trend, which is, by the way, being led by what, what is a younger generation, a millennial and a Gen Z connected generation, that is a bit more vocal about what they buy, is creating a lot of interesting market dynamics in that, number one, it's forcing a lot of companies to reckon with the fact that they need to 
open up a little bit of visibility into how they're being, you know, produced. And you can see the beauty industry is starting to take like real momentum in this. You can see that they're sourcing their honey and their cocoa and their everything from all of these different places. So you can, can sort of see where we're headed from the consumer perspective. On top of that, they want digital engagement. So if you are a coffee producer, you know, in, in Jamaica, then how is it that you are finally connecting to the final consumer of your of the product that you export. And this is something we've run into quite a bit at Emerge, which is, you know, this notion of like, before you were selling to an import house, or you were selling to a production facility that was selling to an export, an exporter that was selling to an importer, and there was there was no thread. And so you as a coffee producer were essentially selling a product that would end up with maybe a different label, or it would end up, you know, if you're producing a mango, then it would end up with a sticker that says coming from, let's say, Peru. But, you know, ultimately today, the consumer wants to know, okay, this mango is coming from Peru and what, and how do I know that the farmer is getting fair pay? And how do I know that, you know, there's, there's uh, nothing going on with my mango in terms of chemical processes and so on and so forth. And so all of these like notions of consumer demands for transparency are also putting pressure on what has been historically a very fragmented ecosystem where everyone keeps their data siloed. There's no incentive for data sharing across different supply chains because that would affect pricing dynamic between a, tra a transportation company or, you know, some form of cargo ship and then the, the producer and also the, the importer. And so there's paper-based processes, there's fragmented information, there are slow payment cycles. There's really no spirit of collaboration in the supply chain industry. And so I think a lot of these like end of market retail consumer uh, demands are starting to apply a lot of pressure and show how important trust and authenticity and verification are going to become in the future of, of food supply chains. Yeah, it's a very long-winded answer, but <laughs> no, really it's very interesting point. to see. How, oh, sorry, bro. No, I'm just agreeing and saying, yeah, that is a really good point. Um, you've brought up our own transparency, and it is, um, you know, consumers are basically playing a bigger, bigger role and showing more and more demand for wanting that authenticity and that trust with uh, things that they're consuming. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a great yeah. point. Interesting to see how so many kind of aspects of this kind of interconnect into all these issues. But um, yeah. I guess it, that's a perfect segue into kind of the reason we're all here. Uh, you know, we're the Caribbean Blockchain Alliance. We exist mainly for the education of blockchain and for the public, the, the establishment of proper public policy around it. So the question is now, where does blockchain fit in? What is the connection or is there a connection or, or explain a bit more of the connection between blockchain and supply chains or blockchain and food security? Um, you go first and I'll produce saliva in the meantime. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Um, to me, you know, I think the reason people get so excited about um, applying blockchain technology to supply chains are for a lot of the reasons that Lucia just mentioned, right? There are all these actors who keep their information kind of siloed and hidden from others. And basically what you end up with is a lot of quote unquote middlemen in the process who some of who are just taking goods from here putting and selling them there for a higher price and not are not really injecting any value or improving things in the process. It's just their own kind of knowledge of the market space that allows them that they leverage to make tons of money. And essentially, just like with most um, value chains, actually, people who are producing the raw materials, in our case, the farmers or the people who are producing the food have really small uh, margins, right? Um, whereas if you look for at the price that goods are sold at for at um, to to actual consumers, all of the money is basically made by people uh, who are at other stages in the supply chain. So from the transporter to the person who packages it, they all make so much more money than the farmer. And the the, the reason um, blockchain technology is a good fit for this is because um, there's obviously ripe um, opportunity to um, use digital tools where there are paper-based systems, but it also provides an opportunity to be have a bit more transparency in terms of the actors who are participating in, in the supply of our food. And so it will become more evident to a farmer, for instance, if he's able to track his mango or his coffee 
all the way up to his all the way up to the sub, to the person drinking the coffee to see, to see how many hands it's passed and how much the price has changed and that will bring about greater um you know people will raise issues when there are issues and it will bring about more um you know it'll bring more value hopefully to the farmers income and it will also it it can also impact consumers to allow them to pay uh, pay less and have more visibility and um, confidence in where their food is coming from. So long story short, you know, the same issue uh, is often raised with cryptocurrencies where basically the middleman is kind of cut out of the, situ the, the equation. Exactly. And that's, that's something that is uh, attractive, but it's also a big, um, it's a bit of a stumbling point, honestly, in, in approaching a lot of the current players in our supply chains, because obviously people, uh, this is how people make their money and they don't really want to uh, change or disrupt that in many cases. So it's sometimes a very difficult conversation to have. And we have to find, we have to be very creative in the entry points that we um, go at this from because, um, yeah, because of that same reason. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to piggyback on that because I think there's this notion of, you know, in the greater discussion around blockchain, there's a lot that is said around middlemen and, and getting rid of them and, and essentially, you know, making processes a lot more direct. But there is a huge percentage of the global population that is qualified, like you can qualify them as a middle person. Right. Because essentially there's an entire economy that depends on this ability to reach certain populations that are rural, for example, or this ability to transport something from point A to point B in an area where transportation is not widely accessible. Or so th I think there's such a huge percentage of the world population that depends on this role of of being in the middle. And in, in our case at Emerge, like we have this, this rule essentially where we don't eradicate middle people. Um, so I think the, the real value to, to which we've sort of um, viewed this is how do you reallocate roles and responsibilities and how do you reallocate trust in, you know, throughout the process so that you can essentially um, make sure that you're not removing anyone from the supply chain, but you are redirecting their focus to build that trust, to align incentives in a way that's conducive to a lot more collaboration from point A to point Z, because ultimately that's the largest problem within supply chains is this lack of um, collaboration and, and sort of this fragmentation of, of everything from information to um, relationships to so on and so forth, right? Because even a farmer would probably not have the contact information of the importer. They would have the contact information of whoever's directly in front of them in the supply chain, but that's about it, right? And so in in sort of redirecting this notion of trust and and figuring out where middlemen are, can actually be valuable and where they are actually value add to a supply chain. I think that's been a really big priority for us, which has made it easier for us to work with different cooperatives and different environments where we would typically be help, you know, a little bit more, received a little more hostile if, if we had come in not, not understanding what the proper dynamics are. And, and it, this can also have like a negative unintended effect on the farmers. Like if middlemen feel like they're being displaced, then like it can, it can um, result in, um, sort of an attitude or hostility toward farmers. And so we really don't want to create that sort of environment within a village, for example, right? And so being very intentional about how to look at blockchain as a facilitator of redirecting trust and, and easing tension around this, this like fragmentation of information has been really helpful for us. You know, I think there's direct value and obviously understanding also like, who are you in the supply chain? Are you you know, an insurance company that, that works with insuring a cargo, then, you know, your incentive in, in using something like blockchain is this notion of like real-time traceability for, for goods, for example, or this notion of saying, okay, well, now it's no longer a paper-based process. It's actually a digital process. And this makes evaluating, you know, uh, an asset much easier for me as an insurance company. Am I a government that's looking to import, you know, of a certain quality ingredient than like, you know, there are ways in which you can now implement certification processes and, and much more, you know, increase your demands for what it takes to actually get a product through to your country and, and you know, be more considerate of, of the value of nutrition and the security that, that your population is going to be eating better by the standards that you now have as a government. 
are you a farmer who's looking to now directly engage with the end consumer or are you looking to, for example, create your very first record of, of sale so that as you sort of go to these creditability programs or multilateral lending programs and you can say, you know, I'm, I'm not as high a risk as you think I am. Don't, don't give me the interest rates of a high risk farmer because I can prove now that I have this ability to sell my product and, and I have a record to prove it, right? So who are you in the supply chain? And, and blockchain can play, you know, an interesting role in creating these records of, of sale and creating this traceability for goods. Obviously, there's considerations in that blockchain ultimately isn't the end-all be-all and it requires complementary technology. And here's where I think we run into a couple of issues. For example, if you're looking to blockchain to solve your traceability issues, then, you know, how are you capturing that data? If, if it's, you know, you're trying to monitor moisture and you're trying to monitor humidity and you're trying to look at geospatial positioning and you're trying to look at, you know, all of these different factors, temperature, then, you know, if, if it requires a human scanning that data, you know, through an NFC chip or something, then you're going to run into the, some of the same problems that you run in naturally, which is this hum notion of human error and manipulation. If you're using an autonomous data logger at an IoT sensor, then, you know, what's the reliability and the fault rate of that, of that device? And so, you really are um, looking at blockchain to redirect trust into the data, but you have to do that by making sure that you're working with all of the supply chain stakeholders. And then on top of that, that you're factoring in all of the complementary technology that needs to power blockchain so that it can ultimately yield the value that it's, um, it sort of can give the, the ecosystem. Um, I think sort of that's, that would be my take on it. Yeah, those yeah. are excellent. I the focus on interacting with the stakeholders. Sorry, everyone, you're adding something. Yeah, no, I was just um, agreeing that, yeah, blockchain is definitely not um, some magic sauce that you can, that will solve all of the problems in our supply chains. Yeah. Um, but I also do want to just add, Lucia, that I would never consider someone who is transporting goods or maybe aggregating goods from several different farmers uh, a middleman. Yes, they yeah. play a role. But they're they're doing something actively to add value. They're yeah, value. Totally. They're valuable to, to the supply chain. So when I was saying middlemen, I was more speaking about people who are not really doing anything except hiking the price. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, sorry, Stefan, you were saying. No, no, and, but that's a good point too. It, it, it's kind of you're both kind of expressing the fact that these systems are at the end of the day supposed to to benefit everybody, or at least everybody who actually provides value yeah and aren't providing value they should not be part of the process to begin with so that's the part we're making more efficient exactly um, but both of you also touch on the point that you know we're dealing directly with stakeholders and regardless of the fact that you're bringing in new technologies these frontier technologies <laughs> he froze oh no i wonder if this might happen as he was on the word technology, that's exactly yeah. the tech field. Okay. That's funny. Um, yeah, it's always, it's always also always like the most basic of tech that fails. So, um, but I guess we can, we can uh, help him out by taking audience questions. If anyone has a, maybe has a question they'd like to ask. Yeah. Let's look at the chat. Okay, don't all speak at once. Yeah, or yeah, you can you can also just like drop it in the chat if you don't want to say it. Um, we'll oh yeah. So, would there be any further implications in terms of compliance? Yeah, absolutely. As uh, oh, hi Stefan, you're back. We're, we are now taking we're now taking questions uh, from the audience to to like hold over while you came back. Um, Sorry about that. No worries. Um, in terms of compliance, yeah, I absolutely think um, there, there are. I think there's, you know, a lot to be said about a lot of the innovation that's happening in the supply chain space right now is individual, like it's company versus company that's sort of taking on all of these different um, projects to try to add traceability to address some of these, these pain points. And I think there's, you know, a need for more open innovation and a little bit more uh, collaboration between people that are in this space specifically because of compliance and because of the effects of what traceability will offer the supply chain system in terms of compliance. Um, you know, some consistency in 
um, something like a, like the way that we register assets or some complicity in the way in which we verify assets so that when we are offering these kinds of certifications or we're giving insurers um, information in relation to, you know, how, how our insurance will be affected by it, that ultimately there is a degree of standardization in, in that across the region and across the world. So I think there are a few implications in relation to, you know, how we register assets and, and who those assets belong to. And obviously in, uh, you know, in some form or other, if you're ultimately having an impact on trade finance, then there's a whole notion of like the financial compliance that goes with it, because you are largely dealing with a lot of populations that generally, like, I think across Latin America, a lot of them operate outside the formalized finance sector. And so if you are going to now start bringing in this notion of traceability, there's going to be a lot more tension on the ways in which uh, current compliance mechanisms are exclusive by nature and are leaving out a lot of people from being able to access standard uh, trade finance options and tools. And so I think there are quite a few implications on compliance that we need to talk about, both from the lens of, you know, what this will do in terms of future um, ways to, to regulate, but also, I think, looking back and saying, here are some mistakes that we've made, the ramifications it's had on a large percentage of farmers and a large percentage of food producers and how we can sort of use the technology to address some of those barriers and create the degree of inclusion that we're looking to as a way to sort of bridge that gap between where we have been before and where we want to head next. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. And it actually speaks to the heart of the value that I see in using this technology. So in within the concept of blockchain, there's this notion of smart contracts. And to me, that can really blossom into adding a lot of value when we talk about compliance, because it's essentially um, a way to kind of put all of the uh, requirements needed to comply in some way. Maybe it's a standard that needs to be hit to export to a specific region or market. Or, um, you know, we can even think of something as simple as having to uh, prove your identity or, you know, how many times do you have to fill out your name on a form and put your birth date and stuff like that. And so suddenly having technology that can uh, make this process much more efficient is, is very, I think, valuable in, in these systems because a lot of time is wasted. Not really wasted, but a lot of time is spent currently um, in achieving compliance for all these different actors. So if there are ways that we can uh, automate pieces of that, I think it's, it's going to really have a tremendous impact. And then this opens up like a whole other can of worms, which is like, okay, well, we're going to digitize a lot of these processes, but what is the degree of connectivity of farmers? And, you know, you have a lot of people in Latin America and the Caribbean that don't even have identification documents to begin with. So, you, you know, if you're starting from a world that has 1.2 billion people without documentation, and you are now saying, well, we're digitizing this process. We're not ready to digitize this process in some parts of the world. And so I think it's really important that we sort of also factor in, again, bridging this gap between like what expectations are for compliance in an economy that essentially is created for people that can comply. And then how we take these, this notion of compliance and say, okay, well, we need to make a few adjustments and we need to correlate what, you know, what is the reality for a lot of people that have been historically excluded from things as basic as identification and sort of see where we can come in and, and create these exceptions and include them in ways that, that will open up marketplaces and trade finance options for them. Awesome. Um, again, sorry about that. Island life means probably the blackouts or wireless issues at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw another question come into what we'll do because we started a bit late as well mm -hmm. so we can i think we can keep going so i'll i'll ask the same question about you know personal examples of how you know both of your blockchain projects have kind of affected you know farmers and whatnot um and then also at the same time just as an add-on how do you kind of reduce the learning curve because a lot of you know user interfaces for these you know apps and whatnot it can be a bit it can be a bit difficult especially if your your clients aren't the most technical or the most technologically savvy so like kind of wrapping that into one question and then right after that we can go uh back to the q a yeah sure so um for for farm credibly we're actually using blockchain technology to help to build um farmer profiles uh on behalf of farmers 
in an effort to kind of improve their access to finance. So, you know, 90% of farmers in Jamaica can't just walk into a bank and um, get a loan. Or so, uh, and this is so. This is a tremendous issue. It prevents uh, a lot of productive farmers from expanding their operations. And the truth is, the the process itself is just a little bit broken, or it doesn't serve majority of the population. In fact, not just speaking about farmers, but generally in Jamaica, 86% of the population is considered underbanked, meaning they don't use those type of things. They don't take loans or or use other financial services. So um, the value I'm saying is really around building profiles and verifying farmer transactions and activities by third party. So this is something that to me can happen for the first time in a trustworthy way. And what it means is that uh, the farmer's day-to-day -day activity doesn't really need to change. Uh, they can keep what, doing what they love, which is farming, but um, our ability to map the business network so to speak of the farmer meaning the people they interact with day to day the farm store selling them seeds fertilizer etc and then even more importantly maybe the the agro processors or exporters who the farmers are selling to the extent to which we can validate and uh, use this information towards building the farmer profile uh, basically provides some measure of credit worthiness right so it's almost like running a, a credit check so just like a loan bureau sorry, a credit bureau is able to give everybody a score we're also able to score our farmers in terms of their their trustworthy their credit their credit worthiness let's say right and use that information for the first time to uh, access um, financing we're also uh, looking at direct investment from uh, into farms from persons around the world who are interested in uh, in financing some of our farmers. That's cool. awesome. And I think creditability is a really wonderful use case of, you know, a blockchain in, in this world. And I think, you know, some of the work that we've done in, in Africa, for example, has been to support farmers that are looking to apply to these multilateral lending organizations and say, you know, usually they walk in and, and they're deemed such a high risk that they either get rejected for a loan or they get, you know, an interest rate that's so high, it's punitive. And so, you know, to be able to say, yes, you know, we might be outside of a lot of the structured sale and economy and, and you know, government registry and so on and so forth, but we still can demonstrate that we are selling, that we do generate, you know, a, a minimum of income each month and so on and so forth. And then, and then use that as a way to say, hey, reduce our interest rates. We aren't as high risk as you think we are. I think that's a really powerful statement on behalf of farmers. I think that that's sort of a really valuable use case. And we've done some work in that realm in, in Africa, but a lot of our work has focused on traceability of, of goods. Um, so we worked on a project, for example, where we were sort of looking to identify where there were main problems in the quality of a shipment of, of food. So we ran an experiment where we traced uh, coffee from Colombia all the way to uh, the United States and Canada across five jurisdictions, some of them in the Caribbean. And, you know, one of the problems that we found were we had, we had done all this work to use both uh, QR codes and, and making sure that there was like a human intake of data, but also autonomous and passive data loggers to monitor what was happening and whether the two cor correlated. And, you know, we had set these targets. And so we said, you know, the coffee should be over under a certain humidity, humidity level, um, over under a certain moisture level, over under a certain temperature, and so on and so forth. And so we ran the experiment and traced a few shipments. And what we found was actually that about 52% of the time, the shipment was unmanaged. And because it was unmanaged, about 83 or 4% of the time, the over-unders that we had set, these targets, it was out of bounds. And so the shipment was actually not being, you know, transported responsibly. And for coffee, you know, this is not devastating. It, it'll affect the quality and taste, absolutely. And as a coffee producer, that's the last thing you want. But if you're talking about something like dairy, meat, fish, that's, it's a devastating impact to say 84% of the time we're out of target for what, how the, the, the food should be transported. And if you think about things um, like global statistics about food waste and food, you know, food loss, we're talking about, about a third of globally, globally produced food is lost in international supply chain. 
So we produce enough food to feed the world, we lose a third of it transporting it. And so for us, the, the big value add has sort of been ways in which, you know, uh, smart contracts and blockchain can create these ecosystems of more uh, coordinated attempts to preserve the integrity of the food as it moves along its supply chain. And then saying, you know, right now, if Stefan is the owner of the transportation company that is currently, currently has custody of the shipment, then if we spot an issue, uh, you know, with the temperature that we give Stefan and his company a few hours to address the issue. And then if they haven't, and then at that point, you know, does the producer or the the processor get access to the fact that there's a problem with the shipment and and to what degree as a consumer are you entitled to know that you know 90% of the time your shipment was in optimal condition or 70% of the time your shipment was in optimal condition and so you do have a right to know that as a consumer when you're making a purchase and so a lot of our work in the supply chain sector across Latin America the Caribbean um, the United States and also Africa has been to pinpoint where these this fragmentation is, is detrimental to how food is transported and then creating sort of these like positive, not positive, uh, secondary effects in, you know, farmer access to, to records of sale and making sure that we can actually get them to work together to produce a national coffee brand, for example, as we're doing in Africa at the moment. Um, and so I think there's a lot of value in what can be done. Obviously, we have some gaps in complementary technology. When I say IoT sensors aren't there yet, they're not there yet. We have, we have near real-time visibility, but not 100% quite yet. Um, 5G will probably pay, play an interesting role in, in our ability to see in real time all across the supply chain. Um, and then just sort of the quality of, of data intake is and the, the size and the, the price of the sensors is still a problem as well. So there's still a lot to be, a lot of barriers ahead of us, but I think the impact that we're having in, in the realm of transparency and coordination is, is something that we're really proud of and something that we're going to keep working on for the foreseeable future. Yep. Just on the learning curve, I think, sorry, I, I forgot to address the learning curve. And I think here's, here's an area where like, I'm quite fascinated by this learning curve because for us, um, like inclusion has been a big part of our mandate as a company and technological justice, which is what we see as like widening access to exponential technology to people that would historically be last to access it. Something that we've sort of realized is there's, there's no real need to get complicated or get, you know, um, technical with the details on how that front end works for certain groups of people. And so one of the things that we did uh, off the bat was say, okay, if we're going to be working with farmers, and Wi-Fi is not widely available, then why are we even going to develop some form of a, an app or a website or a whatever? Like we can just do the entire interaction through, smart, uh, through text message. So we have a big part of our work that is actually like SMS based and you just text right. us certain things in relation to your shipment. Um, and, and that's sort of how we get the process started. And while we sort of build towards, you know, more more connectivity in certain parts of the world. I think this is a way in which we can create, we can minimize the learning curve and also boost inclusion of who can tap into these systems because all you really need is a feature phone. So I think there's, we need to get really creative about not saying, you know, how we, there, it, there's two, two ways you can play this as a strategy. The first is, you know, we are going to take the time to create the degree of connectivity and education that we need in order for them to use our system and benefit from our system. And that's a perfectly good strategy. For us, it's been a different strategy, which has been how do we simplify this product enough so that I, I minimize the adoption curve and sort of make sure that they can use it, see value from it immediately and build from there. And I think that for us has been really helpful in in working and at the moment this pilot that we're running today um so this week we're officially about seven thousand people into it what is going to be a fourteen thousand farmer uh pilot um across 157 villages in a, in a particular region in uganda for example so you know this is how we've done it it's been how do we simplify our tech to the degree where we want to see adoption at work they're connected to a blockchain yes but they are going through it in a way that, that they're able to use, understand, and, and see immediate benefits from. And I think that's a key question that we as innovators across the Caribbean need to be asking ourselves is, you know, does it have to be on my terms of, you know, what I'd like in terms of use? And, and do I want them all on a mobile app on a smartphone? Hell yeah. Can I do that? No, not really. And so, so you know, reshaping our thinking around what does adoption really mean and look like and how do i make sure that i'm making it accessible technology 
yeah and i mean right. all, all excellent all excellent points for sure because the the access has to be the most important thing at the end of the day yeah. and whenever we talk about blockchain you know we're always talking about decentralization and democratization we have to make sure that, that extends to you know the absolute last mile that it can affect everybody everyone can actually benefit from it um yeah. and also it's easy it's very cool to see that it's interesting to see that like you still have to engage with no matter what you're doing it, it kind of have to have that financial aspect the the especially with this where there's like trade finance uh credit risking credit scoring interest rates all that kind of interconnects so yeah. you still have to make sure that's accessible to and actually increasing the accessibility of that yeah yeah, I think it's it's fascinating specifically because it's this notion of saying, you know, we have a, a tendency to say we're going to build it and then we're going to go and find our users. And in this case, you build it, you won't get users. So you need to figure out exactly what the, the user pain points are, yes, but also what are the ways in which users even use the technology at all? And, and then build around that because otherwise you're looking at, you know, what I love to call death by platform, which is this notion of we keep building all these products and then we're like, why isn't anyone using it? It's so beneficial for them. And the reality is like, they can't use it and, or they won't use it because they don't fully understand it. They don't fully consent to how their data is being managed. They don't understand the ramifications of what they're using. And that's fine. And that's normal because new technology operates in that way. And we remember, you know, and, and still are facing this barrier with crypto, right? And so, how do we expect people to sort of look at these alternative ways of using exponential technologies and understand it off the bat? You can't. And so, um, so I think it's really important for us to keep that ever present in our mind that to like to minimize this learning curve, it really is about extra extrapolating your, your intended effect and your intended use of the technology and then adhering to what the reality and, and context is in where you're trying to implement it. So true. And yeah, such a such a good approach. So that's really commendable. Um, I'm really excited to hear about your use of SMS. It's something um, I've toyed with in the past as well. Um, for Farm Credibly, we do have a mobile app that works on smartphones, but it also works offline. Um, and, you know, a part of our approach also kind of um, speaks to the other question that came up in the chat. So instead of, you know, trying to insist that our farmers have to use the mobile app, we are actually encouraging kind of partnerships or outreach with younger persons to uh, help this along because there is the need to engage more uh, young people in agriculture generally. So we're taking the opportunity to see if we can encourage that in, in some of what we do. But in terms of the learning, learning curve around blockchain itself, um, it's largely not there for us because if I'm speaking to farmers, um, it's going to be very rare that I even mention the word blockchain. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for me, you know, good technology right. when it works is invisible. You don't even know it's there. So like, you know, it's more about communicating the convenience or the, the value that you are proposing than it is about getting into the nitty gritty details of the technology. Like Wi-Fi, is Wi-Fi good? Does it help, you know? Uh, how does it work? Do, do people need to appreciate the nitty-gritty details of how data travels through the air and all of that? No. Do they need to know that it can make their life better because they don't have to trip over cables anymore? Yes. And that's, that's a much easier sell. So that's been our approach. We don't really talk about uh, blockchain until we really have to, like, <laughs> like we are now, because um, we have such a nice uh, and engaged community who, who are genuinely interested in this stuff. Exactly. And I mean, not having to trip over cables is a huge step forward, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But um, I'm glad you, you touched on the, the question that was asked. So just for everyone else, um, the question was, what are the steps to be taken to get younger people in the Caribbean, especially uh, fourth form, which is, um, you know, kind of early high school, to play a greater part in resolving these issues? Um, so that's an awesome question. I'm glad you touched on that, Ruin. But at, and at the same time, just to throw in a, a bit more of an abstract question, and I think this will be the last question. Um, how do we get, all, like, how do we get our countries to, you know, whether it's government, private sector, whoever, to take agriculture in general more seriously? Um, you know, whether it's via policy, whether it's via incentives, because everything runs by incentives. What, what should 
people be focused on? What should, what should we be looking at? I think that's an interesting question because food is one of those things where like if you're a mass consumer, it's you're taking it for granted. Like you just assume that it'll be there, whether it's coming from, you know, a locally sourced place or whether it's coming from an import place, you know that like at, in 2020, avocados will be available. And that's a really interesting thing because this pandemic sort of highlighted that like maybe avocados won't be available at all points in time and they shouldn't be available at all points in time. And so I think there's um, this notion of like what this pandemic has done to really show us how interconnected our food ecosystem is, but also just like the degrees to which, you know, we are a very food insecure region. And, and by that, I mean, you know, if, if another pandemic were to happen or if there was something to happen to disrupt the food supply chain, the Caribbean would be hit incredibly strongly. And I think the, you know, there's been some, I've heard of some projects across the region that are really, you know, trying to figure out ways in which you can creatively and resourcefully and sustainably grow food on island. But I think this is something that, you know, where younger generations might have some interesting bits is in teach like the scientific process of growing food and the notion that like can you create food friendly ecosystems in you know cliff environments or in like uh shallow ocean water can you do it in like what are the ways in which you can take an environment and essentially turn it into a food friendly place and i think that's something that in a, in a region that is so dependent on food imports, that should be part of like the core science curriculum is, you know, let's teach people about food and food production, thinking ahead and then taking this moment and seizing it and saying like, it's very clear that we are food dependent and we can't deal with that if something else happens as 2020 has shown us something else can continue to happen endlessly, <laughs> seemingly endlessly. But on top of that, in that, you know, we're going to have an economic effect of this pandemic, and it's going to be quite devastating for a lot of people. And price, food prices are going to climb significantly, and economic stability is not going to improve for a while. And so I think this sort of issue that we're arriving at in what the human ramifications of the economy and the pandemic are going to be, make it so that it, this is a very opportune moment to really emphasize um, what those consequences are going to be, predicting what those consequences might be, and then using that to push some form of policy change. Um, and then at the same time to sort of bandwagon off this like openness to technology that some governments across the Caribbean seem to be showing quite strongly and saying like, here are the ways in which technology really can contribute to that. And, and here's the business case for doing it. And here's the human case for doing it. And here's the regulatory case for doing it. And I think, you know, it does require quite a significant push. And I think before even getting uh, governments to care, you also need to get people to care and to understand how, just how dependent their food system and food availability is, and also the degree to which it is becoming threatened um, through the very dynamics of, of climate change, through the very dynamics of, of living in a society that is prone to something like a pandemic. And then through just like natural evolution of, of food preferences and market dynamics. And so I think, um, a long-winded way to say, like, we really need to make this into a collaborative effort and, and use the current situation to really apply pressure on certain factors around food production that make it inevitable that attention be paid to them or else there is going to be an economic and a very, very human cost to, to inaction. Excellent. Uh, Rune, I think you're muted. But um, did you did you have anything else to add to that, or? And at the same time, uh, if anyone else has any questions, last minute questions, or that we want to get in. But no, I, I fully agree that we, and obviously incredibly overdue, but we have to actually get these things into schools. I don't know why there's such a lack in the you know traditional school curriculum for anything to do with agriculture or, or food security. You know, rege regenerative, regenerative agriculture is really fascinating. Um, you know, understanding how to grow food in like weird environments is interesting to a child. Like there are ways in which we can pique curiosity and, and say, you know, we're going to give you like a really unfriendly environment for food growth. 
can you figure out a way in which you can grow something here? Is there a possibility of, of you know, desalinating water at a high, at a high effective, cheap way so that our islands can, can not be so freshwater dependent and things like that? So I think there's, there's questions that, that we can ask younger generations to answer in a way that is experimental and that draws them into science, into agriculture, into food production, into technology. And, and so I think that's definitely an opportunity where, you know, if you are working in a school, like your science fair should be like food themed this year. Should, you know, you're, you're doing a hackathon, like food should be one of the pressing challenges. You are, um, you know, mentoring a, a youth program, you are using, you know, something to explain blockchain, explain it through food, explain it through, you know, food production and, and take all of these instances and realize that, that this is an issue that is really, really important for the region. And in order to highlight that consistently, we need to be consistent in presenting it as such every single time we can. And I think, you know, that might be a slow way of doing it, but I think it's a, as, as effective a way of doing it as possible at this time. Great point too. Um... This is, this is, I guess, more curiosity. Uh, so, Varun, since, since, you know, you, you're speaking from being in Jamaica, do you, I guess, are policymakers kind of seeing what you're doing? Do they have any idea of, of like, kind of the needs or how maybe where technology comes in or, or even in terms of, you know, how they see the issues with agriculture? Is, is that something that you kind of see which, in terms of, your interactions or is it completely separate? I think we may have lost them actually. Yeah, I think so too. Just realized. Yeah, but if there are any last questions, I'm happy to, to yep. field some Give anytime. A, a few seconds, if anything. <laughs> or actually, I mean, you can just unmute also and kind of ask that, yeah. that too. And I'll do it at the same time, though. <laughs> if not. Great. Okay, I think we can close. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, any final words? Um, no, but thank you very much for having me, and I hope it was somewhat uh, helpful or insightful in some way, shape, or form. And happy to carry the conversation off uh, offline with people if they're interested in following up on anything. Um, thank you very much for joining us yeah hey guys so so sorry um you, you lost me i'm not sure if you're hearing me now yeah we got you now all right cool i did hear your last question so i'll answer really okay. briefly um i also want to comment on what we were saying about youth so uh in terms of youth i think um all good points but one thing that wasn't mentioned that i think is important to appreciate is also that there's the need to change the narrative around who is involved in agriculture. And so there's a bit of an image problem that I think is affecting our youth. There's no lack of interest in the field um, and just genuine curiosity that will naturally take off. But the problem is I think we have no, we have no kind of, uh, there's, there, are few, there are very few examples to aspire to to aspire to when it comes to agriculture. Most young people don't want to uh, live the type of life that their grandparents did if they have witnessed their grandparents doing farming their whole life, right? So the image is of somebody in kind of torn up clothes or muddy boots, working really hard and seeing next to nothing for it. And I think once that narrative is able to change um we'll see we'll see a very big difference so that's another big reason i'm very encouraged by um agrotech and put a lot of energy into it because i see where you know young people now have a natural affinity to digital for digital tools and um it's it's just something that is getting more and more exciting every day right and people are out there surveying their land with drones or doing different types of precision agriculture, it really does engage uh, young people in, in new ways. So uh, in, in terms of policy, I would just say that um, things are improving here. Um, policymakers and the government are 
able to have more and more visibility and appreciation for what we're doing. And in particular, I'd say luckily in Jamaica, the Ministry of Agriculture just kind of changed heads. And so there's now a very young minister in place who has taken the opportunity to start by just doing, uh, doing kind of outreach and trying to have conversations with people. And because of the current situation, some of that is taking place via Zoom meetings and things like that. So there is a new use of technology and I do see a new set of kind of listening ears that are that are here now. And that is that's really refreshing to hear. So I'm I'm to see, sorry. So I'm really uh here to help push that forward as well. That's awesome actually. And I mean th that's an excellent point too because you know we can talk about getting more people involved in agriculture because it's necessary. But if younger people aren't interested then you know it's not gonna happen. So uh, great mm -hmm. point about um also the, the tech and if you kind of find better ways to you know kind of digitalize the services um get more technology into these ecosystems then you know people will actually be interested uh and it's great to hear that you know the policymakers are are coming around too and and that's kind of, it kind of connects because when you have younger policymakers, then you you already have people who are more open to tech more open to you know digital aspects of of ecosystems so Excellent point. That's really great to see. Really great to hear. Um, but I think we're good. Yeah. No more questions. So thank you guys so much. Uh, we'll have another one probably next month. It will most likely be monthly. Uh, if anything, um, you can check out Caribbean Blockchain Alliance at cbahub.org. And uh, if you guys can quickly uh, give your websites, that'd be great. Sure. So we're at farmcredibly.com. I'll type it into the chat. Feel free to use the contact form there and reach out to us to get in touch directly. Very cool. I'm at emergetechlab.com and I just dropped it into the chat. Very cool. All right. Thanks everyone so much. Take care. Have a good night. Good night guys. Thanks so much.